Hi and welcome. I'm your host, Maida, and this is the Catalyst Club podcast, a show where I sit down with catalysts of change who have been there, done that, and even gotten the souvenir t-shirt. Our topics focus in the communication layer of the tech stack, where software, infrastructure, and services come together to deliver outstanding CX and digital employee experience. Hi, and welcome to the Catalyst Club podcast. I'm Maida, your host, and today with me, I have Rich Mozak. Rich spent over 20 years in executive technology roles, 10 of which were CIO roles in multi-billion dollar enterprises. During his career, he has led significant technology transformations driven by very different business circumstances, high growth through acquisition, large scale through organic growth, and contraction related to a bankruptcy process. Today, Rich has a passion for developing technology leaders into business leaders and has mentored several VP and director level IT leaders who went on to become CIOs. Rich, welcome. Thank you, Mara. I'm excited to have you on the show, so I'm eager to dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your trajectory, and how you got to where you are today? I came out of school as an electrical engineer and I was in hardware development, and I won't spend much time on that. I actually moved out to the Washington, D.C. area. And like a good Chicagoan wanted to move back because I thought this was the center of the universe. So I actually moved into the IBM sales branch and was a systems engineer and then kind of a marketing specialist. And that was important because I got to see at IBM, the customer was paramount, right? And I think that helped me a lot when I went into IT because you know, our business partners were essentially our customers. So I had learned how to treat customers, I think, the right way. One of my clients actually hired me. It was a mid-sized retailer in the IT, and you know, I moved up pretty quickly. It was one of those things where I didn't think it would happen to me. I had this 10-year plan to get to director, and within about a year and a half, I was a director, and then I had moved up to VP. So I had executive roles for a little over 20 years, and then was promoted to CIO at that mid-sized retailer in 2003. I'll come back to where I went after that. But that company actually went through some pretty tough times and we went through a bankruptcy process. And that was important for the rest of my career because I essentially lost my fear. We didn't have time to you know, debate things for a long period of time. We really had to make quick decisions in order to survive. So that's a much different type of experience. We also had to contract our department because in our spending because we went from a $3 billion company to a billion dollar company. So not a pleasant experience, but one I learned a lot from. After that, I went to a, actually a, a large scale retailer who had underinvested in technology kind of intentionally. They had spent money on expanding the business and expanding their footprint. And they knew that eventually they were going to have to come back to technology. So I was brought in with another high level exec and added to the IT team in order to scale IT, essentially. We wanted to step up our capital spending significantly, essentially double it. We really had to get the group, both from a personnel and process and infrastructure perspective, in a position where we could effectively spend that money and invest in technology. And that was a lot of fun, much different than the previous company. But as I said, those lessons learned with losing my fear enabled me to be effective in instilling a lot of change at that large-scale retailer. I moved on to a, I would say, mid to large insurance broker, which was a totally different industry for me. A little bit higher margins in insurance than in retail. Private equity owned, which was good. The mid-sized retailer essentially was taken over uh, private equity at the end of my career there. 
And I thought that that was a situation which I was actually pretty interested in and enjoyed that. So getting back into a private equity owned company was great. So that's kind of a career. While I was at the large retailer, I kind of reached the peak of where I wanted to go. Like I didn't need to, you know, I got to be CIO there. I didn't really need to become the COO or the CEO. And my focus tended to shift. I was always really interested in people development, but it became kind of the primary thing that I focused on is, is you know, what was my legacy going to be is how do I help other people? people, the people that work for me, achieve their goal, right? So while I was at the insurance broker, my my last full-time CIO role, I started to think about what did I want to do when I essentially stopped working as a full-time IT executive. And I decided to go into executive coaching slash consulting. So that's what I do right now. I, I coach, generally it's technology leaders, but I also consult as well in the, in the technology world. So with that, that's a little bit about me. Now uh, we can move on to the topics at hand. <laughs> All right. I will get to today's topic, which we're talking about that technology transformation and, and the expertise that you have there. Can we talk a little bit more about the first retailer you were at? You're dealing with a bankruptcy. Was it the bankruptcy that led to the technology transformation that you were brought in to, to deal with? Or were you brought in before the bankruptcy? Paint a, a better picture for us so we can kind of understand what happened there and how you got things started. Where did that begin? Yeah, actually, I was with that company for quite a while before the bankruptcy process, and it was growing significantly in the 90s. And we were actually building out systems to enable the, the company to scale. And you know, we were building the staff up as well. That was a lot of fun. But then business conditions changed and the company started to struggle significantly. So, you know, I was there through all of that. And then, you know, when we filed bankruptcy, we actually it was a multi-divisional company and one of the divisions emerged out of the bankruptcy. And as I said, it was a $3 billion company and now it was a $1 billion company. $3 billion going into bankruptcy, $1 billion coming out. So we had to cut our costs essentially by two thirds, which is difficult. I mean, all costs are variable over a long term, but not over a short period of time. And in a short period of time, we had to reduce what, what a lot of people would think are fixed costs. So staffing was part of that. Negotiating with vendors was part of that. Changing vendors, changing the technologies we used. For example, we were very aggressive in going to, we were running an MPLS network and we we migrated to DSL backwards before that was even thought of for a storage network. But we really didn't have a lot of options. We, We had to do this in order for the company to survive. And it did survive. So, I mean, it was, you know, in retrospect, you know, I can't say every decision was right. But in general, IT, along with the other parts of the business, did enough to enable it to continue to be a viable retailer. You know, that was a lot different than what we had done previously in building the staff, et cetera. A lot of pain with that, you know, a lot of reductions in force. As I said, changing technology. The changing of technology, actually, that was the interesting part. We had to do it fast. And, you know, we were doing some new things and in in some degree cutting edge because, as I said, we just didn't really have an option. That was the fun part. The other parts weren't so fun. So when you moved on to the next retailer, no longer having to deal with cutting costs, were you put in to scale 
to kind of go back into the path that you were at at the first retailer? Like let's scale. What was the the project there? And and let's paint that picture. I mean, there were there are a number of projects, but essentially at a broad terms, we were looking to invest a lot more in technology. As I said, double our our spending in investment. And we just needed to get the organization and the process and the, our ability to leverage our outside partners. We had to mature that. And that's probably even understating it. The way we approached IT was this retail, retailer had grown significantly over a relatively short period of time. And the IT organization was operating at a point where you know, it was probably more akin to a billion dollar company as opposed to a multi-billion dollar companies. And then when I say multi-billion, I'm 10 to $20 billion company. And, you know, they had done some great work, right? They wouldn't have been able to grow the, the, at the rate they did. But, you know, the systems were generally either homegrown or heavily modified. So essentially they were homegrown systems or they were you know, a lot of mainframe type systems. So, you know, was something that we needed to essentially take in a different direction, right? We didn't want to be running where a competitive advantage wasn't really an issue. We didn't want to be running homegrown systems. We wanted to run package or SaaS systems. So we did a lot of replacement of systems. The other thing that there was a lot of investment was on the e-commerce business. It was relatively new, not brand new, but relatively new. And we had some issues with that in just adapting to scale. So that, that was the kind of the playing field we had when we when we went in there. So specifically, when you get into big, large-scale replacement projects, we had a lot of those. But we also had to, A, hire a lot. We put in an intern program, pretty significant intern program where we were, we were bringing in about 50 interns a year. And that became a source of staffing up. We established relationships with big, large offshore outsourcing partners. And we, in some cases, took complete functions and had them perform those. So the types of changes ran the gamut. You know, the most interesting stuff that I found was, you know, the replacement of applications and working with the business. You know, so if you heard the horror stories of ERP type systems, and we had stuff that was on that scale, and those are tough. They're fun, but they're tough. You know, one of the things I would say was to my folks is, I know the engineering to you appears hard, but that's the easiest part. <laughs> Managing the change and managing the expectations of the business and what's realistic from a technological perspective, as well as a timeline perspective, is, is the more difficult part. When you go into these projects, you know, everyone in the business is complaining about the current system. It's terrible, it's awful, it doesn't do everything we need. Then you're going to migrate to a system and you want to keep it vanilla. You, you don't want to be modifying it. So whether that's a package in the case of SaaS, you really don't have an option to modify it. So everyone's like, well, I'm going to get all this great new stuff with the new system and I'm going to get everything my current system does. And that's not how it works because the current system's typically been modified over the years and have like these specific, what people consider neat little features. And reality is that the package system isn't going to have all that. It's not a superset of all the functions. So you have to manage through that. And I remember having a discussion with a couple of high-level execs, very bright people. This was a eight-figure, multiple eight-figure type of project. And we got into a debate about feature that wasn't in the new system that was going to save hourly workers maybe 
I don't know, five hours a week. And I'm like, we can't do that. And you get into these discussions like we're spending all this money and we can't have that feature. And I'm like, well, you know, if you if you just look at that in isolation, that sounds like, you know, absolutely you should be able to do it. But when you add up all those features and all those things, this project will die under its own weight. So I'll turn that around to you and say, we're going to risk tens of millions of dollar project because few hourly people are going to have to do a little more work. It was just, you know, it was like $20,000 a year or something. It was a ridiculous amount of money. And as I said, they're very bad people. And eventually we made the right decision on that project, but the emotions get into this and you get into this pressure from, you know, it could be very high level execs that are, that will say that they'll say, we're spending tens of millions of dollars and I should be able to get everything I want. And that's just not what you want to do. And in fact, with SaaS applications, you can't because you don't even have the ability to modify them, which I think is actually a great feature because your chances of success of these large scale projects are much better if you keep this as vanilla as possible. Otherwise they can tend to die under their own weight. The system may just not work because you're adding all these modifications to them and you really have to manage that risk and, and keep this these things contained. The other aspect about this is, is probably more at the grassroots level. So you know that's a discussion you're having with executives about whether you're gonna have a feature or not, but you're also changing the business process typically when you implement these systems. And with that, you've got a group of users, right? These people are going to use this system. And I would say you got the cheerleaders. So it's probably 20% of the people that are going to be like, yeah, this is great. And you know, they'll help you, et cetera. You got 20% of the people that are never going to be happy and they are going to complain. And you're really, you're probably not going to be able to persuade them. It's just the way it is. And then you got the other 60% that are in the middle. And those are the folks that you have to convinced as you move along. And, and that requires a lot of work. And it's a lot. And it's it's an aspect that sometimes gets ignored because generally you have IT running these projects and they're more technology oriented and it's more just logical and fact-based, but there's a lot of emotion that goes on with these, these types of things. You're changing how people do their work at, at work. That's a, that's a big deal to them. So you have to manage through that. It's fun. It's interesting. The human dynamics are, are, you know, I found that to be interesting, exhilarating to some degree, but also it could be very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so glad you you talked about this. Give up on the 20%. You're never going to tip the scales and, you know, and, and have them jump on board. But what are some things that if you, somebody out there right now is sitting there thinking, how the heck am I going to get the 60% on board? What are some tools or tips that you used in the past to get them on board or even execs on board as well? That's a great question and brings up a really important point. If you're going into one of these large scale projects, everyone should be able to tell you what that project is going to do for the company, right? And they should essentially know the elevator pitch. You have to have three to five things that this is really going to deliver. At a, at a top level. If you get into a laundry list of 40 things, you're losing perspective. First of all, people can't keep that straight in their heads. So you, you've got to establish that up front. Look, for as a company, this is what it's going to do for us. One through three, one through five, whatever it is, not more than that. Get everyone to agree and understand that and dig into that and say, okay, what does this mean? And you, know, you want them to understand it, not just be able to repeat it. 
and then keep coming back to that as you go through the project, right? So you're going to have to make trade-offs. There's no doubt. Like I just mentioned one that was probably a relatively easy decision, but there are going to be trade-offs that aren't as easy. And you can keep coming back to kind of that bellwether. Okay, is this going to impact our ability to deliver one, two, or three? And if the answer is no, you're you're okay. And, and so you just keep bringing people back to that. The other thing when you go live, so I, I mentioned that people, you know, I hate my old system, but a week after you go live, like, I want my old system back. I mean, it's just the way it is, right? Because you're implementing this change. But while you're going through that, you're going to have issues and you have to communicate with those folks that are using the system. And I would say you do that in many different ways. If you're local to those people, you not only keep them up to date generally through email, but you go talk to them, right? And you give them that personal touch. If not, a phone call to some of those folks. Hey, how's it going? That will help you maintain credibility and show that you really care about their experience and assure them that whatever issues that they're encountering will get resolved. Those are some things that you can do both upfront through the project and then as you're implementing the project. But I would say those, and I've seen so many projects that they, they, you, you ask people, well, why are you doing this? And they, they can't tell you, right? And I'm not talking about just, you know, somebody that's doing data entry into the system. I'm talking about the execs and, and everyone should be able to articulate that, which brings me to another point, which is if you're going to think about spending tens of millions of dollars, you need to ask yourself some really difficult questions. And some of those are like, okay, at what lengths are we willing to go to, to make this happen? So, you know, if there's a group of people that says, well, I just don't want to do this anymore. Do you have the fortitude as an executive team to say, you're going to do it this way, right? And if you're unwilling to do that, don't waste your money because you're going to have to we get back to that 20%. You're going to have to do that. There is going to be those rubber meet the road conversations. And if you're unwilling to do that, don't, don't do it. Now, that's easy to say, but and usually everyone up front says, nods their head. So you actually have to create the scenarios for the execs to say, this is going to happen, right? And look, let's set this up and let's really test this. Are you going to be willing to do that? And in cultures that are very collaborative, which generally I think most businesses want a, a more collaborative culture, there are times when they're uncomfortable sending a top-down message. But when you're trying to change the business like this, there will come a point where you're going to have to do How do you handle the too many cooks in the kitchen scenario? You know, because input is going to come from every which way when you announce, you know, a project in, that you're starting large or small. How do you manage that? At what point do you say, okay, we have too many cooks in the kitchen. Let's scale this down. These are the decision makers, or we're not taking any more input, or we want input. Like, how do you manage all that information overload that you're getting and wants overload that you're getting, sort through it and, and come out with the three to five? This is what we're going to deliver with this new project. Yeah. Typically, you would have. That typically, for this level of project, you would have a steering committee with representatives, and it depends on you know the breadth of the project and what areas of the business it impacts. But you would get execs from each area of the business and technology to commit to being on the steering committee, and they would essentially be the ones to make decisions 
if they couldn't get resolved at a lower level or if there was a large scale decision. For example, if you had a, for whatever reason, you went and you got into technological differences and you're going to have to spend money, more money because the project is going to take longer. Not an uncommon thing that you run into because let me just leave it at that. You would go to that steering committee and say, okay, this is the situation. We're going to have to spend more money. Or if you got a critical, what the business feels is a critical feature that's going to hamper them and you bring it to, you would bring it to the steering committee and you do pros and cons on whether you want to implement that or not. You know, do you want to do modification of the system? Do you want to build a function outside of the package or outside of the SaaS system? And you would bring it to that group and you'd make a decision there. And you'd have to share the implications, both short-term and long-term of what those were. And that's not easy because the business folks, you have to get a commitment. And I think this is better today than it probably was 20 years ago, but it's, I still saw it relatively recently where the, a lot of companies just view these things and they're saying, well, that's an IT project. I don't need to commit business resources. And that's a kind of an old school view and it doesn't really work that way. Uh, you really need to partner with business folks and have a commitment to have business folks dedicated not the, not the folks on the steering committee, but you're going to have some business folks that are going to be pretty dedicated to these endeavors because they're changing their the way they do their work. So let's say you're an IT leader of today, for example, you know you need to put this committee together and you come up across the issue of not being able to to get that commitment. What are some things that you've seen in the past or done in the past to get that commitment? Is it well, you know, you cut your hands and you swap blood or <laughs> kind of thing, or is it like, this is what's going to happen. This is the amount of time. Is there always like an outlier with any group project that, you know, one person only comes and shows up at the very end and, and takes credit for yeah. it. Or once everyone's on board, is it like all hands on deck? Let's do this. What, what could people who might not ever done something like this, looking to do something as large as we've been discussing, expect, you know, when dealing with the, these steering committees? Yeah, I, I think if you're if you're talking about this scale of endeavor, you're talking with the CEO and the most senior people in the company and make it clear that if you don't get this commitment, we shouldn't we shouldn't spend the money, which is a hard thing for the IT folks to do sometimes because they want to they want to do these types of things. And the business people too, too, but they're just, you know, they have their day job, right? So how do you staff this? Do you pull people out of the business and backfill them? That's ideally what you would do. But businesses struggle with that decision and try to kind of have their cake and eat it too. And depending on the scale of the project and the amount of business change, you may need to do that. You may not need to do that. But I think you have to objectively evaluate that. And if that's what you need in order to make it be successful, don't cut corners. And if business isn't willing to make that commitment, don't waste their money because that's what you're going to be doing. And beyond wasting money, I mean, careers can be on the line with these types of things. So you just have to be pretty adamant and you got to hold your ground because people are going to try to convince you that, well, you really don't need that. Come on, you could be creative, right? That's what we pay you for. I mean, there's all these cliches in uh, you know, my response would be that actually what you're paying me for is to evaluate this and to provide you what we really need to do in order to make this be successful and, and to objectively tell you that if we're not willing to commit these types of things that we shouldn't move forward. That's hard. I've seen it where it just doesn't happen and you move forward anyway. Sometimes it's the IT agenda, right? It's they're pushing the this 
project. And that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. If you don't have a business partner that's committed to implementing whatever large-scale change and system that you're doing and you're driving it alone, good luck. I just don't think that has a high chance of success. So two questions. The first are what we call here at Exponent the guiding principles, what will get the commitment needed from a steering committee? And second, who is in charge of putting these guiding principles together? It's the business leaders in cooperation with IT. I mean, it depends on the company. IT may drive that process, but it's the business leaders that really need to define what this is going to do. So if you're spending that kind of money, there's a high level reason you're doing it. And there's a high level business reason you're doing it. So to answer the first question, yes, keep coming back to that and explaining that to people and explaining how that's going to be accomplished is critical to persuading those folks. There's always the what's in it for me. You know, what does this look like for you after this is done? And hopefully there's a win for the people using the systems. Not always, right? It may not be making the user's life easier. That may not be the goal of the project. It may be something much more significant. Now, hopefully you can accomplish both. Typically with technologies, you can do that. Newer technologies, I should say. So. You know, I think that's critical. The other thing that I would do is to kind of tell people what to expect. Like, you know, I remember talking to folks and I'm like, it's going to suck for a while, but it'll get better. I promise you. And you tell them that and you can remind them of that later on. You know, you can get more nuanced than that. But especially when, you know, when we implement this, like there's going to be some issues and it's going to be rough. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. But, you know, I mean, you're just telling them the truth. We will get them resolved. I'm committed to getting the result. And then when you go through it, you remind them of that. You say, remember when I said this? You have credibility with people. And then you knock them out and say, look, this is getting better. And they're like, and and the other thing I told them is like, there won't be a point where you're going to be like, hey, what he told me, that actually happened. You know, they'll move on with their life. You're never going to get the credit. You're only going to get the pain for what it's painful. And then that noise will eventually drop off. And that's your reward. Right? That's just kind of how it happened. There are times when you have to just kind of take a step and look back and say, wow, we actually did accomplish a lot. I think that's that's a, a memorable moment. I think anyone that, that will listen to this episode will be like, Yes, that's ex- you're preaching mm-hmm. to the choir. We never mm-hmm. get the good job. We did it. It's always yeah. like, there's a problem. Fix the problem. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. What are you going to get me this? Yeah. <laughs> Remorse is one of the most common issues that we see after any type of technology investment. How do you handle that as an IT leader? I think you have to go back to those three to five things that you've listed as to Will this still accomplish those things? And if the answer is yes, you just keep going, right? There are going to be difficult times. There are going to be during the project, you know, everyone's really optimistic up front. The timelines tend to be more optimistic than they should because you're going to run into issues. And the, the newer the technology and the bigger the change, the more you're going to run into those things. So you just got to keep grounded in what you're trying to accomplish for the business and know that you're going to face obstacles. And then when you go live in implementation, you're going to have problems and you're going to have people, I mean, they're going to be pounded on your door, right? They're typically going to be some issues. If the thing went perfect, that's great, but you probably spent, I mean, that's just, you're typically 
you're going to have some issues and you try to catch all that stuff up front before you go live, but you're going to have some. And just knowing that you can get those resolved and accomplish the business goals is, is what you need to do. And, and not only do you have to do that yourself, but you have to convince everyone else. So it is critical for the leaders to, even if they have their doubts, not express them, right? I just, they have to, they have to instill a positive sense that we will get to the finish line. The other thing about these large scale implementations is typically you go live and there's going to be some follow on. So there's never this big aha, right? Hey, we did it. We're done. I mean, there sometimes there is, but sometimes you're like, okay, well, that's going to come in phase two. And then you have a phase two. And then it, it, eventually you look back and you say, wow, we accomplished a lot, but it may not be an obvious point in time. You know, I I like the the fact that you've brought up loss of fear, you know, that do or die scenario that kind of made you lose your fear. Let me ask you this first question, not related to today's topic, but do you, when you are doing the career coaching with the leaders that you're working with, is that the first thing that you talk to them about? Like, okay, let's lose the fear. You have to make quick decisions or is it something that most people are able to do quite quickly, or is it something that you need to focus on? I do think as we talk to our own clients, the biggest thing is the fear of making the wrong decision, right? And so unless they're put in against the wall, like you were at, at, at the first retailer that you were at and dealing with a bankruptcy, how do you lose that fear because you're not, you don't have that do or die mentality, or do you, even if you're, you know, in, in a comfortable state of mind in a comfortable position? I think you can. I don't think you have to have your back against the wall. You know, as it relates to coaching, you can help that process along maybe and having people think about why they're hesitant, but it really depends on them. And can they see that they are hesitating? You know, sometimes you, you don't think you're being fearful, but you are, right? You're just being risk averse. And it may not be obvious, right? Because it's all relative. You, you can only see what's around you, right? And I had the benefit or curse, depending on how you look at it, being put in a situation where it was like, okay, we, we just got to do this stuff. So it depends. And I, I think it, it really depends on the person themselves too. Some people just are naturally more aggressive. And then there are some people that are just more risk averse. But through coaching, you do try to reveal that to folks or have it revealed to them through their experience so they can move beyond that. I want to have you again, because there's a few things that you talked about, but they're not related to the topic, but I want to pick your brain. So for sure, I'll definitely have you back on the show just to, to pick your brain on some other things and maybe go into you know further details. And, and also, I want to talk more about what you're doing today in a different episode and, and your, your expertise in, in bringing people to the next level of their career. And, and I think that, that that would be an interesting show too. That'd be great. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Myra. All right. Take care. You too.